Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Chicago is known as one of the world's capitals when it comes to architecture, but sometimes the world of architecture seems out of reach for everyday people, people who don't live downtown where a lot of the fancy buildings are. But my guests this week are working very hard to bring Chicago architecture and Chicago neighborhoods together in a big way. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. This week we're going to focus on the Chicago Architecture Biennial and its mission. Now before that title puts you off, let's be clear, unless you live in a forest, architecture is part of your everyday life. We live and work in structures designed and built by architects. Some we notice, some we don't. But does architecture touch you? My guests, I believe, feel it should. Jack Guthman is chairman of the Chicago Architecture Biennial. He's a lawyer by profession, specializing in real estate, zoning, government regulations, commercial development, and such. He also represents some of the biggest cultural institutions in the city. Todd Palmer is executive director of the Architecture Biennial. Before that, he was a director and a curator at the National Public Housing Museum. He's an architect and an artist, and his work has been exhibited here and in New York. Also here is Emmanuel Pratt, whose profession is urban designer, and he is working in the community. He is co-founder and executive director of the Sweetwater Foundation. That's a not-for-profit on the south side that's trying to regenerate neighborhoods. He is a 2019 MacArthur Fellow. In other words, he's a recipient of what is better known in the city as one of the genius grants for his work. Well, welcome to all three of you. Uh, Jack Guthman, what is the Chicago Architecture Biennial besides something that happens every two years? And it's it's still underway, right? It is underway. It's underway till uh, January 5 at the Cultural Center and all over the city of Chicago. The purpose of the biennial, uh, and it's had its genesis in the Chicago Cultural Plan of 2012, is to again position Chicago at the forefront uh, internationally uh, in a art uh, art arena. And it was very clear that uh, architecture made the most sense because we're a city known for its architecture. So we are to be a forum, a place for dialogue about uh, within the profession about uh, uh, architecture and the built environment. Uh, we're also a show for Chicagoans because Chicagoans have a reverence for architecture, as you mentioned in your lead. And an important part of this also is uh, the educational program uh, in uh, the pr prior two years, uh, about 10,000 school kids of all ages have participated in one way or another in the biennial. So we have several audiences, a professional audience, a civic audience, I should add a tourism audience, and an educational uh, purpose and program. And and a lot of that deals with architecture as a uh, as, an, as more of an intellectual subject. But uh, Todd Palmer, I want to uh, uh, turn to you. The theme of this year's biennial is and other such stories. Now, what does that mean, especially given our intent to link to communities? 
Absolutely. Um, well, if you think about how we know about architecture and the, and the architecture we know about, it's often through the stories that are told about it and the, the recognized buildings of a Mies van der Rohe who comes from Germany and is behind a lot of the ways that modern black gridded glass and steel structures look in the city. Or you think about Frank Lloyd Wright and the prairie or Chicago as the supposed birthplace of the Skyscraper, don't tell New Yorkers that. So these are stories, and that's in the popular kind of imagination. Um, I think it's through the stories, these kind of stories that we recognize. Well, that's architecture. Um, I'm actually a student of architecture, as you, as you mentioned, and of specifically of the history. And there's a very funny thing that architects do. They distinguish between architecture and buildings. And won't get into that, but the buildings are often the structures that we don't hear about. And sometimes there are places and stories that have been, say, bulldozed away. Um, a good example is on the site of Mies van der Rohe's uh, IIT campus, Crown Hall. There was a building standing there before. It was an important uh, uh, apartment for African Americans. Um, and it was, it's, it was bulldozed uh, to build the campus. So, the, so pieces of that building were actually part of the biennial. And the story of, of uh, the, those um, residents becomes something that we want to showcase. So I think the theme really is about opening up the stories of architecture to other such, you know, storytellers and other places, other people, and in and, 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 and that way enlarging who connects to the architectural conversation. Now, Emmanuel Pratt, you are actually living the concept of architecture in the community, but but how do structures, how do the buildings and the building of them really change the, the way of life in, an, in a neighborhood? So, you know, I was absolutely um, inspired at the possibility of participating in this particular biennial um, because of the theme of other such stories and the possibilities of art and architecture to really spark imagination. Um, and I think a lot of times the narrative is so fixated on just the building, as, 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 as Todd was mentioning, building and the building typology that we're told is the architecture, but it's really much more than that. It's, 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 it's the art of space and the materiality of the space. And then how do people come together to then activate and bring life to those spaces? So what we do on the South side is, um, you know, in a place that was, once formerly like very urban dense population that has lost a lot of its its housing and lost a lot of its industry and lost a lot of its um, people, unfortunately, on, uh, in Inglewood and Washington Park area. We're living, bringing the space back to life from blight to light, if we, we as we say, by, by raising new forms and typologies of architecture that call into question, what is a, what is a farm in a city? What is a barn in a city? And it's the first timber frame structure, timber frame barn structure. It's a mortise and tenon structure that's celebrating the, the wood of, you know, Douglas fir and hand raising a barn structure that becomes an, a place of gathering for people, not necessarily just for, um, you know, animals and tractors and machinery. Manuel mentioned it, but I won't let me underscore it. Uh, he was asked to be a participant in the biennial before he was named a MacArthur Genius uh, <laughs> Award winner. So we try to look ahead uh, and we try to see what is happening at the intersection between, the, between architecture 
and the the built environment and the social issues which are framing the built environment. And he was a perfect example. What he's doing out there uh, in Englewood is a perfect example of where we're featuring. Well, it's interesting because the, the, the erasure of typologies of housing is what we wanted to focus on for this particular biennial. It was, we looked at the, the Chicago worker cottage house that most people don't know. They know the Chicago bungalow. Mm-hmm. But the, the worker cottage was what led to the bungalow. It was a, it was an affordable housing. It was like the first affordable housing. And it had a very particular type of style and design and footprint. And it's kind of been lost to our everyday realities, but it's still amongst us every day. And and in in your uh, uh, operation, I guess, it was, it was, it's really more than that. It's a neighborhood. Yes, exactly. That, that That's precisely it. You're going to that i mean you're you're aiming to that i mean you've got you've got one structure up but that's more of a, yeah. a an overall structure but what is that what is that doing and 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 you're involving people in the neighborhood in well this. there's you know instead of looking at um vacancy as just emptiness we look at it as, as a possibility of hope i mean that's the one thing we we need art and architecture to really fundamentally allow for spaces of imagination of what can come next to get us out of this hole. The South and West sides of Chicago are uh, too, too empty. They're too vacant. Mm-hmm. And the story that perpetuates it in the common media is negative. It's not the most inspiring for imagination. So what we do is we do farming, we do gardening, we do carpentry. We do all this stuff as educational frameworks and bring people from the trades in and bring engineers and architects to work together and design new spaces, new housing, and new spaces of hope. Um, Todd, and actually any of you, all of you should comment on this. Uh, What is there in this biennial that would draw people from Chicago's neighborhoods in? Because I think people often think of Chicago architecture as something downtown. Uh, You know, the architecture crews, uh, which Mm -hmm. those are actually pretty expensive. But but it is... gives that sense that the architecture is something we look at and are told about, but not necessarily something that we are drawn to. Yeah, maybe I can paint a little bit of a picture of what the biennial experience is. I think first and foremost, um, it's a free public um, installation, set of installations that are housed in the Chicago Cultural Center, which of course used to be a library, always been a place for the public you know, my father from East Chicago would go even, you know, on the other side of the border in Indiana to come to the library to check out books. So it has this function as a public space. And we inhabit it instead of with books, with these installations. They, actually, the exhibitors come from around the world. So it's an opportunity to discover projects like Emanuel's in Chicago that maybe deserve more light. Um, but it's seeing those projects in dialogue with similar such initiatives around the world. So, for example, we have a woman that was just actually collaborating with uh, Emmanuel this weekend um, from Palestine. She has a seed library, and she's been collecting heirloom seeds, which have been lost to industrial processes of farming. And for her, the seeds really represent identities that have been maybe uh, excluded over time. And so you have this amazing collection of seeds next to a structure built by Santiago X, 
who's an indigenous artist who's imagining a revival in the future of the mound-making traditions that have long been forgotten, unfortunately, but remembered by those indigenous communities. So there's a range of projects as a digital fire and a digital kind of powwow space that you can walk inside, you can touch the kind of thatched roof. So all the experiences are quite visceral and immersive. Emmanuel has brought one of these uh, workers' cottages structures at full scale inside the cultural center. So if you are old as enough to be my dad, you might have <laughs> remembered that these spaces had books and now there's, but if you're a young kid, you've only known it as a cultural center. Either way, they're pretty larger than life, things that you can touch and, and in some cases um, interact with. There's digital technology, there's films. So what we hope is that this range of projects that speak to critical issues in Chicago, housing issues, affordability issues, how do we make a more inclusive city, how do more narratives rise to the forefront, and um, and through architecture, these issues are explored. But to your point, Craig, uh, the original, the 2015 biennial was only at the Cultural Center. Uh, when I was asked to take this over, the first thing I wished to do and I believe we were successful, was to bring it into the neighborhoods. Mm. And we started with uh, six what we call anchor sites, small museums around the city, uh, but we've expanded that greatly. And it's a two-way street. We bring people uh, to the downtown area who may not have, might not have been, particularly with the kids, might not have been downtown before, and then we urge the people downtown to go to the remote sites, such as uh, Emanuel's place uh, in, in Englewood. So uh, it's a, it's a uh, it's circular. Uh, I mentioned the students before. I believe 47 neighborhoods were in our program. Kids from 47 of the 77 Chicago neighborhoods were at the biennial or the biennial came to their schools in 17. I think that number will be uh, equaled this time around. Well, I had an amazing experience just recently um, when, I, when I took my team to celebrate the biennial. Like we, we participated in the installation to do a, a basically a barn raising of a house and the cultural center is just like historic in and of itself. And, and in some of our team was like, I remember when this used to be a library and one of the team, one of the youth says, well, it's all about knowledge creation anyway. Mm-hmm. So we had this great dialogue. And next thing you know, I look up and then there's three sets of tour groups of sixth, seventh, eighth graders from three different neighborhoods being led by Chicago Architecture Center docents. And they're coming, converging onto our installation. And I said, okay, team, now we get to do a virtual tour of our space. We can talk about this. And we, 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 we went to look at the installation and other installations, and we ended up engaging with people from around the city. And it just started to have this really amazing dialogue with these kids that have never been exposed to ranges of architecture, right? They might've heard of Frank Lloyd Wright, but that's about it. And then now we have a chance. We all got to explore the cultural center and what is culture by having these dialogues and conversations that we wouldn't have had otherwise. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking about architecture and communities. My guests are Chairman Jack Guthman and Executive Director Todd Palmer of the Chicago Architecture Biennial and urban designer Emmanuel Pratt, who is head of the Sweetwater Foundation. Um, What are we learning 
from the International Gallery of Participants who are taking part in this biennial? I mean, uh, are, what are they bringing to the table to this idea of the other stories that could be told by architecture and the structures? Yes, I should give a bit of credit at this moment to our organizing curators of whose ideas really instrumental, and they made the selection of the contributors, including Emmanuel. So Isomi Molu is actually based in Chicago. She's born in London of Nigerian descent. She's a contemporary art curator, but worked and studied as an architect early in her career. Um, she worked with Sapake Anjiyama, who's also Nigerian, also grew up in London, um, an educator who's really worked on the global stage to think about how do you take learning out of the classroom and infuse it into large artistic gatherings like a biennial. So she's done that in Europe at some of the most prestigious um, manifesta documenta on the European continent. And then finally, Paolo Tavares is an architect, but he would call himself a research architect. So he's really been focused on ad advocacy and activism as critical to the toolkit of an architect and thinking of the architect instead of being kind of a star in front of the building, in front of the media, that it's the uh, architects, he or she, are working behind communities and communities actually take leadership in uh, the built environment. So as you can imagine from the biographies I just mentioned, the and Emmanuel who was selected to be part of the show, the um, 80-some contributors to the biennial really dive deep into these questions of how do we make built environment more inclusive? Um, how do we learn from indigenous um, communities, whether they be in South Africa or right here in uh, Illinois, to respect the environment at a time of climate change and live more cohesively with nature? Um, and then also this, how can architects change their practices to be more community oriented and and more, and, and not just community-oriented, how can communities take leadership in decisions about the built environment? So the, then the biennial, they share, they're thinking about this not through papers, but through projects that encompass um, physically these ideas. And Emmanuel, and I, I know you, you want to say something, and, and please say that sure. too, yeah. but the idea that, uh, that Todd just raised is, is one... Is there also uh, a difficulty in getting more architects, more designers to design for the communities that have been overlooked? I mean, they aren't just overlooked by, by government. Uh, so th that's, can that be part of? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what, I, what I greatly appreciate is where we're at in the stages of, different types of crisis in the world, where you're looking at climate, if you're looking at just how we clash individually or politically. I mean, we just clash a lot. And in that, you lose, unfortunately, a lot of humanity is lost. And what I greatly appreciate about it, the participating in the biennial, actively doing it, engaging in, in conversations with architects and with engineers and people that are just, landscape, you know, they're, they're not necessarily embraced historically in a profession as part of the conversation. This has created a space for all of those people to come together and have some conversation about the importance of land, the importance of soil, the importance of housing, and in a rethinking, instead of just taking a plot of land and just digging it up or tearing something down and exposing all the material and all of the air, shifting the air quality, we're actually having the conversations of like, how do you use technology most appropriately? How do you celebrate the actual materials or 
engage students at every level in education about how to design and build the most appropriate building. Like there are ancient technologies and ancient indigenous like populations that have deep knowledge of how to design and build. And they have not necessarily been embraced in the vernacular of architecture as a profession. But ironically, now people are looking back to those histories to find the answers to the clues that we've kind of forgotten about. How do we forget about light? How do we forget about like air quality? It shouldn't be, we, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be missing that in the equation right now in the 21st century as we design cities. Water, like as a fundamental source of life. And what, you know, the dialogues across the international global forum has just highlighted how much we do have in common. And we tend to forget how much we really share in common, food, soil, water, air, land, like housing. The globalization of the biennial, which Emmanuel just alluded to, um, is very important. It's important in two ways. I mean, the idea of having the dialogue is not to have a local dialogue. It's to have a broader dialogue. And one of the ways we do that, I mentioned very much earlier, the idea of bringing professionals together. We do that. Uh, We have symposia. We have schools like Columbia, Princeton, coming in and having dialogues with each other and with locals. Uh, And at the same time, our message gets spread uh, across the world. I I will say, I think that the, uh, you might call it this, the public relations, the message of the biennial has been much more broadly achieved around uh, around the world today, in part because we're dealing with very important everyday issues that are felt by communities, by the built environment around the world. So that's the dialogue that was uh, thought to be the reason, the the raison d'etre in one regard, the raison d'etre of the biennial is to have Chicago at the forefront, at the center of that dialogue. And I think we've achieved that. Absolutely. So, you know, Todd referenced earlier how we had one of the gatherings this past um, Saturday in our, in what we call the Thought Barn, uh, it's a good space for people to come together and share ideas and dialogue and conversation about some sometimes really rough topics of conversation. Like in our case, redlining. You know, we've, we're sit, we, you know, our site sits on a historically redlined site where there has been choices for decades, not necessarily to invest back into that neighborhood. But where we are is uh, we have, we're feeding the neighborhood through gardening but much more than gardening and farming, we're actually feeding through knowledge and knowledge creation through doing carpentry as math, you know, looking and talking about, well, we have all these empty lots instead of just talking about the emptiness, what new spaces are needed for this neighborhood and community and how can we all participate in designing them? So when we sit around the table and have a farm to table dinner, dinner experience, which is rooted in how we share our histories and eat, we literally took samples of seeds that were from around the world food that was cultivated, practices that were cultivated, ceremonies that were shared. And we sit down and eat together as humans looking at each other. And then all of a sudden design conversations started to happen. It's like really amazing. And we had people from the neighborhood. We had people from outside the neighborhood sitting together in common and, and talking to, you know, about what is next and how can we support each other. Speaking of what is next, you've been working with the schools for the last uh, years is that pipeline there 
are you getting more people who are saying, oh, I, I can do this or I want to do this? Uh, I mean, how much is that catching on? Because that's been a lot, another area where in many things people, we've fallen down, where the people aren't saying, I want to pursue what you've pursued. How well is that working? I think it's a it's a long-term commitment. You know, we've been doing the biennial just since 2015, and it's the third edition. Um, but there are, you know, incredible stories of, I'm just going to reflect on the last edition, a classroom of um, from the Mexican community in Chicago came through, and T- Tatiana Bobao is a Mexican woman architect who had one of the towers that was featured. And um, I'm told I wasn't in the room, but that the, a little girl from the school said, oh, I didn't know there were Mexican women architects. So it's just two years ago. I don't know if she's old enough yet to be an architect. And it's a really important question you ask about a pipeline. But I think bigger than that, than having more, we should have more architects of color, is just that communities in general should feel that they're part of a conversation about architect, whether they're a professional or not. So it definitely, the more people on that professional side of the table there are, the more we diversify and include on that side is important. But then we also have to create a profession to your earlier question that's responsive, knowledgeable, caring, and, and engaging of communities. And, and you'll see projects in the exhibition, in fact, that are designed by non-professionals. So there's a great example from Brazil, Afro-Brazilians, who've just taken matters in their own hands and they're taking over commercial buildings to create housing downtown close to their jobs um, using the kind of techniques they know. And in Brazil, there's an amazing self-built community. I wouldn't call it a movement, but that we call them favelas. But they're under-resourced, far away. They often have sanitation issues. So by taking over these downtown buildings, they're close to their jobs. They have the infrastructure there. So architects can then learn from these practices and then in the model of Paolo or some of the architects can also then be supportive to ensure that it's not just a takeover, but it's done to code and and with skill, et cetera. So there's a lot of opportunity of learning across the board. From the beginning, Mm -hmm. BP, which is our founding sponsor, has uh, caused us to have a competition this year, two competitions among young people uh, who are creating uh, projects relating to architecture these are kids that are they're young kids. Uh, they probably they have no formal training, but uh, with the guidance of materials which we have put together, which the Chicago Architecture Center have put together, uh, the uh, the projects that come out of that are really quite remarkable. These these are young kids who are now uh, put into the uh, uh, given the opportunity, given the opportunity uh, to create. And they have done so. Will each and every one of them or any of them become architects? I don't know. But it certainly is a start. Well, to build off of that, and there's a lot of resonance that happens in dialogue here. But to build off of that, um, we actually received one of those students from Lindblom Math and Science that was the winner um, of the competition. And the, the, I think the winning design was around how do you build a hospital for your community? And what was great is that it just so happened that the student um, was actually in a school in Inglewood. 
Mm-hmm. She was in limbo math and science. And I'm going to just add to that. The challenge was actually how, what would you do with a vacant lot in your community? And I think the answer was a hospital. So it that's was, even it more was interesting. Fascinating yeah. It was fascinating. The answer was a hospital. Uh-huh. But then the, 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 the challenge was the student was like a rising junior. It was like, I don't know how to design a hospital. I know the concepts of hospitals. But I went, how, does, how does food integrate more responsibly in the hospital? So then... The, the team from the biennial, the educational team, and the curator said, why don't we have, them have her go to Sweetwater? So she participated in daily activities with us doing gardening, farming, carpentry, and then got feedback from our team on their designs. And we had some students from Harvard, some students from University of Michigan, some students from University of Chicago. And it would have this like crazy pedagogical moment that was really from the ground up. And it wasn't really about those titles of where are you from. It was like residents were giving them direct feedback on how great it was to have a student from the South Side winning this competition, designing and thinking about where the, what the role of architecture for her own community. And now all of a sudden we're having a continued conversation with Tatiana around the same conversation. I should add, and there's... It's going to have to be very quick because we're almost well, out of time. The, uh, the city of Chicago has really encouraged this as well. Uh, the uh, the awards in December are going to be handed out by Mayor Lightfoot. So I just want you to know that um, the, the whole community is behind this activity and particularly the youth activities that we're engaged in. And it is still going on. So uh, thank you to Jack Guthman and Todd Palmer of the Chicago Architecture Biennial and Emmanuel Pratt of Sweetwater Foundation for spending this time with us. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. You can also find our podcast on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.